during the pandemic, we had three clients who asked to stop printing the magazine. Funnily enough, all three of them have gone back to print. Members still want a printed product as part of the publishing programme. Welcome to this week's Media Voices, everybody. We're the Media Focus podcast that takes a look at all the news and views from the past week in media. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. That clip you just heard was from my interview with Ian McAuliffe, founder and CEO of Think Publishing. Think's what, in the good old days, we used to call a contract publisher, publishing primarily for membership organisations. We talked about the ideal employee for a contract publisher, the ideal client, and how the pandemic has accelerated digital adoption and how the pandemic has accelerated digital adoption amongst traditionally conservative clients but still not killed off print well in a unusual turn for media voices we're going to start the news roundup by talking about the business of media instead of social or trump which is God, a bit of a novelty for us. Well, we, we, we wish for a quiet week, didn't we? And it's actually been a relatively quiet week. It's almost been too quiet, really. Um, not in that like, horror movie way, but... Why just... is that? Why has it been too quiet? <laughs> well, we'll get into that in a bit. But to begin with then, Axios is launching Axios HQ, which is a comms platform that will enable businesses to update their employees in Axios's traditional and signature bullet point style via internal newsletters, etc. So it's going to cost at least 10 grand a year to subscribe to. Um, but what does this actually mean then for people who sign up to it? What's, what is that signature style of Axios? Well, I suppose for anybody who gets any of Axios's newsletter, it's very much uh, their the, the tagline is smart brevity. Um, and it's kind of, um, it's very bullet point style. I think they try and keep stuff between sort of 200 to 500 words. It's very much what you need to know without, any frills or filler or anything around the edges. And and that's, I mean, that, that's what they've built an entire business model on, really. You, you're oh, saying that we shouldn't try some smart brevity instead of this dumb <laughs> longevity that we go for every single week. Oh, killer, no filler. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's a format thing, though, isn't it? Um, it's taken that, the idea that, well, I guess the phones, phone reading has driven part of this, that people haven't got a long time don't want to spend a long time they want to be able to see what they're reading and get to the end of it as quick as they can so it is all driven by these like boxes and bullets and paragraphs i would to be honest i would like to see more companies financial results just delivered in the form of like one emoji so it's just like <laughs> thumbs know. up thumbs down <laughs> yeah exactly uh, uh but this isn't this isn't just you know coming out of the gate now this has actually been around at least as an idea for quite some time hasn't it yeah, I mean, ever since Axios launched, they've apparently had a lot of companies approaching them asking for ways that they can create Axios-style newsletters for their own businesses. So, yeah, this has apparently been in the works for about, well, it's four years now. Um, so I, I think what what they've, what they've developed... <laughs> you sound, you sound <laughs> confused You're by that. You're clearly convinced you'll be taking a <laughs> subscription as soon as you can. No, I, uh, I'll, I'll explain in a minute. What they've developed is this sort of... is this software that... Um, you can create these team updates and emails with templates formatting to create these scannable bulletins. I just don't 
No, you can't just do that in a word talk. I'm sorry. No, I completely understand that. For, well, for, me, the, for me, Axios is a style, not a... Yeah. Yeah, it, it's... And and what that's like, the question I was going to ask, and I'm sure you don't know the answer because you've never seen it yet, but <laughs> what does this software actually do? Is it just like, is it almost like that WordPress where you fill in boxes? Yeah, basically. Or is it like, uh, is it like Hemingway? Where it's like, no, this is way too long. Get rid of every single oh, word yeah. apart from that one. Yeah, it's it, it is essentially like a, a WordPress or, or composition style bit of software that, right. that it'll it'll score you based on um, it'll, it'll give you a smart brevity score as to how kind of smart, brief, and clear the info is. Um, but I, yeah, I just I, it's not. I don't want to say it's not difficult to write in that style, but you, I don't feel like you need software to help you write in an Axios style. Yeah, well, so, so I suppose that actually gets us onto the meat of the conversation, which is why is Axios launching this as a software as a service type offering rather than doing it, say, through consultation or, as you mentioned, almost just like <laughs> letting people do it themselves? But aren't money they also money and scale. Mm. But aren't they also offering consultancy services? They're, so they're dialing that back down. There was a really oh, good Digiday piece which we'll link to that they've they've been consulting on this the last sort of four well four years. Mm. And what they've realised is actually a lot of the lessons are the same that they keep bringing up every single time. So they're like, well, if we just put this into a software, it help us scale that conversation, um, so that we're not having to basically repeat ourselves every single time. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just it's just about them being able to roll it out. But I, I don't know if I was a publisher, I was looking at, or if I was a company, I was looking at ten k a year, ten grand, yeah. For basically a tool that would tell me to shut up a bit more often, I don't know if I would do it. I mean, it's interesting. The interview that I'm doing with Ian, that I've done, sorry, let me do it again. It's interesting because the interview that I did with Ian McAuliffe at Think, that's part of what he's talking about. They've got a new consultancy arm coming in and passing on that expertise. So I think there is a role for that, definitely with passing it on to brands. We've had publishing companies tilting at the software window for years and years, and it's has it ever really worked? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Arc from uh, uh, Washington Post, yeah. although that is you know technically that is from Amazon. That's the big successful. Yeah, okay. Okay. So here, here's the thing, right? Now that's so interesting because Thanks. it's not the Washington Post; it's Amazon. Yeah, that is Amazon. So, as an honest to God publisher, got any chance in this? So, Minute Media. Do you remember when you were speaking to yeah, yeah. Um, the guy's name who you can't remember, <laughs> Asaf Pellad last yep. year? Um, and he was saying that th their CMS they license out their their CMS, yeah. and that brings in half their annual revenue. Yeah, I do remember that. But I mean, like that's I'd say they're the exception rather than all that. Like they they are they are smart cookies. Well, I think they're. Is it isn't it weird that it's like. Like the software companies that have become publishing companies, and then there's publishing companies that have become maybe not software but technology companies. I remember digital media strategies sessions with big UK publishers sitting saying, Well, we're not becoming a technology <laughs> company. It's like, No, you're not. You're really not. <laughs> Okay, but is this not just an extension of what publishers have always done and have continued to do, which is selling that comms expertise? Look at what the FT yeah. is doing, selling its kind of subscription expertise. I suppose with the price tag, though, is that, that that in itself is a signal of who they're targeting. That's something that you know, a publisher is going to look at and be like, 
Yeah, maybe not, but... <laughs> I thought you did like a cat-like hiss <laughs> of that. Um, if you're, let's say you're, I don't know, let's say you're virgin and you've, you're you looking at this to do your company comms, that is a drop in the bucket. Well, okay, maybe not maybe not Virgin Airlines, but at the moment that is a drop in the bucket. So drop I... Drop in the ocean. Yeah, but actually, I, I do I a drop in the ocean. Drop in the bucket. <laughs> it's a lot of the bucket. Reasonable, yeah. <laughs> that is a drop in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose it's just, it, it's it's relative as to who they're targeting. Okay, well, how about this then? Because I'm just I'm rereading that Wall Street Journal article that we're going to link to about this. So subscribers to the platform also have the option to add a service, so that's over and above the ten grand that allows them to tap that team of editors directly. Yeah, uh, see, I knew that. Yeah, that starts to make sense to me mm. because then they're actually going to go. Your software is really nice, but actually, your editors are the the real value here. So why don't you just do a commerce for us? Mm. Actually, this made a lot more sense to me when I went on the actual Axios HQ page, and they had some examples of the sort of thing they, that they, that you could use Axios HQ for. So I think we'll probably link to that as well because it that to me put it in a lot more context about what what you could use it for. You know who's really missed the trick here is Microsoft, um, because why didn't they do this with Clippy? Why couldn't you have like <laughs> licensed Clippy to sit on your desktop and go the sentence is too long? Okay, so now for the news in brief, uh, sort of segueing from newsletters to newsletters here. Um, so a new study has shown that actually 84% of consumers are unwilling to pay for newsletters and would rather access ad-supported content for free than pay for ad-free content. So there's no surprise there, but I think the, the real surprise for me in this is that actually half of consumers don't subscribe to any email newsletters at all, either for news or entertainment. So for somebody who gets at least 30 a day, that was quite a shock. How do you manage to live your life without having accidentally signed up to one of those i get like eight or nine a day that i have accidentally forgotten to unsubscribe to or have ticked just somewhere i don't yeah, know how, i don't know how people live without our media voices daily absolutely. roundup that's a, that's a, <laughs> everyone should be signed up to our... yeah go, go, go across the voices that media and sign up to that it's fantastic and actually if we could find the 16 percent that we're willing <laughs> to pay for it that'd be really cool hey well speaking of people willing people being willing to pay for things. Apple is allegedly discussing launching a new subscription service that's going to charge people to listen to podcasts. So we don't have many details about how this is actually going to work yet. I am unsure about how the vast majority of consumers are going to feel about a paid-for offering appearing in what has traditionally been a very, very free-to-access medium. I think part of the issue here is that Spotify have this, like, more or less in a very weird roundabout way, got a subscription service for podcasts. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, but, well, exactly. But that's Chris's point. You've got way more value than just a podcast. Is this part of Apple's bundle thing? The, it, this is literally just all being floated at the moment. It's um, it's a scoop from the information. So there's um, there's only three paragraphs I can access for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the information is very expensive. <laughs> okay, well, the Google News Initiative has announced it's going to give three million dollars to news and fact checking organisations in an effort to combat misinformation around COVID-19 vaccinations. This is good news, right? Yeah, anything that could do, you can do to cancel that. I saw that I think it's in China, they're getting influencers to take the vaccine you know, first because people tend to trust influencers more than they do a lot of their kind of traditional news sources. So yeah, however you do it, let's just get everyone vaccinated so I can leave this room, please. I think what was interesting about the Google thing is they're focusing on groups that are disproportionately affected by misinformation. So, Boomers. 
<laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's, there's um, there's quite a few um, ethnic divisions. So I was reading yeah. this week about um, even in the UK, there there are whole groups where there are whole ethnic groups where you've got huge amounts of mistrust in in vaccines. And so yeah, there's Google is sort of trying to say if you you know if you reach those people, can you please take some of this money and, and help us just ease some fears around this? Well, that is that is indicative of a much much bigger problem, which is mm. you know historical mistreatment of of like certain uh, ethnic them. groups and everything. Yeah. Bigger mistrust of authority in general. Yeah. So three million is a drop <laughs> a drop in eight oceans. A drop in lots of buckets. And speaking of misinformation, misinformation a shock horror this week. This is I think this is why it's been such a quiet week, has actually dropped dramatically after Twitter's banned Trump. Um so there's a company called Signal Labs which has charted a seventy three percent decline on Twitter and beyond. Just so I guess from his if- account? <laughs> uh, well, I guess, yeah, I, I guess I'd love to know what they classified as misinformation. But if you've not got people reporting on what he's saying and parlors down and everything else, it's 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 not unpleasant out there. But I mean, Twitter's Twitter's been banning people left, right, and centre. Well, right, should, yeah. and right, and right. <laughs> hey, see, we did there. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, Telegraph owner Sir David Barclay died this week, aged eighty-six, after a short illness. Um, him and his twin, uh, Sir Frederick Barclay, uh, had a huge falling out. But they sort of they are at least, at least in theory, they're responsible for kind of turning the Telegraph around. Although Press Gazette did a good uh, dive into whether that was true or not. Local news app Newsbreak has raised one hundred and fifteen dollars. <laughs> Whoa, um, that much! They'll be buying themselves a new pair of trains. Yeah. That's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> Local news app Newsbreak has raised $115 million in new funding. The startup says it's currently reaching 12 million daily active users with its AI-driven local news aggregation. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And Condé Nast in there. And Condé Nast US had big plans for podcasts in 2020, as as did many publishers. But <laughs> plans to continue into 21 pretty much collapsed. Well, I was going to say collapsed dramatically. It emerged that they collapsed this week in dramatic fashion. Um, and an open letter from 11 former contract producers and editors. Um, it, it was quite a uh, quite a tough read. Well, I mean, they're explicitly saying, that, I mean, the, the letter says, we don't foresee success for this or any audio initiative that doesn't respect its producers, editors, engineers, or the creative work they're doing. So it was nothing about kind of the Condé brands themselves. Mm-hmm. It's literally just the internal working practices. Yeah, it, 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 they essentially completely blame mismanagement for the network's lack of success. I think it's just really interesting because um, there were a couple of groups that where people were, were discussing the initial article about the fact that Condé weren't planning to do podcasts anymore. Mm. Um and and people were like, oh well, I'm really surprised because their 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 video and their multimedia teams are, are like world class, really really good. So they're surprised that I hadn't translated through. And then you read this open letter about what went wrong, and you're like, oh yeah, ouch. That's a blip. They'll fix that. There's I was no going to say, yeah, there's no way they're stepping away from podcasting for that long. Yeah. With, I mean, just think about the brands they have that could be well served. But it, you know, there's obviously some real issues in there that they need to fix. And I, I would also say that is the US because the. At the continent UK, have got some really good um, podcasts. So. What What are you two going to write in your uh, leaked letters years after Media Voices is broken up? I'll just it's just a lack of respect that I can't. Do. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I spoke to Ian McAuliffe, founder and CEO of contract publisher Think Publishing. We spoke about the importance of his staff being topic agnostic, the benefits of slow digital adoption by risk-averse clients and how COVID has accelerated digital uptake. 
But first, we spoke about the range of publishing services Think is involved in. Well, that's a really interesting question. It's uh, <laughs> We're always being asked to uh, get our elevator pitch ready to uh, explain uh, as an agency what we do to potential clients. And uh, essentially anyone who is looking to any company or brand or membership organization looking to communicate with an audience is a, is a potential client. So I'm always at odds to, or at pains to tell all of our team at Think to make sure they get their elevator pitch right. But it's actually quite difficult with Think um, because we've evolved hugely over the years from from where we started, which was essentially as a contract publisher that was the terms that we used to use back in the day and funnily enough that then turned into customer publishing agency and then content marketing agency and I actually think that um, today you know contract publishing is is really describes what we do anyone who needs a publisher whether that be uh, for print digital, uh, live events, virtual events, um, book publishing, uh, whatever the medium, uh, as long as it involves content, um, you can contract us to deliver it for you. And obviously, the word publishing today, well, what what does publishing encompass for for most people? Do, you know, I think you can talk to probably 10 different people and ask them what they think you mean by the word publishing, mm-hmm. and they'll all come back with different answers. But essentially, what we mean by contract publishing is the whole gamut of publishing from from your publishing strategy through to your uh, audience definition through to uh, print uh, paper distribution subscriptions newsstand and then right the way through all of the digital platforms including what we're on now podcasts mm-hmm. uh, audio on demand video um, and uh and then it's really all about monetizing it as well. So uh, bringing in the advertising revenues and the sponsorship revenues to to help offset uh, at least some of the costs of putting the content out there. You're pretty much a commercial publisher. Um, you do everything that, uh, that a publisher would do, but you do it for other people. What what What's the different skill set that you need? Uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking more in terms of the, the relationship with the client, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that is where, um, in terms of working as an agency, a publishing agency, you know, the skill set and what we expect our teams to do is, whilst I guess the experience, knowledge and understanding of core publishing skills is the same, publishing on behalf of another organisation involves uh, understanding how agencies work and understanding how to extract from a client what their real aims and objectives are with their publishing program and really making sure that they and sometimes sometimes we're we can be a bit of a pain by really trying to get our clients to nail down exactly what their aims and objectives are what their kpis are from their publishing program and to get it written down so that our teams know then what they're expected to do and i think perhaps in uh some uh, just commercial publishers, sometimes um, aims and objectives can be a little bit lost in the passion for the subject, in the passion for the uh, particular area you're working in. Whereas 
everyone in our uh, teams really from from editorial uh, design creatives digital the marketers uh, subscription specialists all they are really trying to do is to deliver on what the client has briefed us in to deliver um, and I guess that's one of the one of the key things that that, that makes us different in terms of um, you know being different perhaps from a commercial publisher um, also, I think, you know, people often set up magazines because they love that particular subject matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they want to own a magazine in the motoring space or in the caravan space or shooting or whatever your particular hobby or interest may be. Um, whereas I think we're, we've got a team of very much, very skilled professional publishing experts, but, but we're topic agnostic. So we work, I mean, we've got about 40, 40 odd clients at Think, 20 of those are in consumer, 20 of them are in uh, the business and professional space. And we cover everything from accountancy and automotive to engineering and legal. And on the consumer side, tourism and travel, media, PR, conservation, wildlife, arts and culture, um, so it's a hugely wide range of topics that the team have to deliver uh, publication, publishing programs on. So everyone has to be incredibly flexible. This is an impossible question and I apologise for it. What's the perfect think employee look like? Well, I think they have to be, for me, they have to just have drive and ambition we've been going for 20 years i guess we've gone through a lot of um historic hiring of senior people uh within various different part departments bringing in sales directors bringing in global digital directors uh all sorts of people and funnily enough it's never ever none of them have ever worked out um which may say more about us as a company than them <laughs> but um we we promote from within we train we develop and we give we we give people who want to succeed a chance to do so in an environment that basically changes and can change year on year as far as their career goes i think often i mean we've got a i've got a team of three um sales directors each running their own uh, teams each of those people have been with us for more than 10 years um and the reason they've stayed with us is because they constantly have changed their portfolio. We bring in new business, they add another product to their portfolio, um, and we move people around a lot as well. Mm -hmm. We give people opportunities in other departments. And so I think, well, gosh, what's the perfect employee? It's someone who's smart, intelligent, and bright. Obviously, that's a given. But I guess it's people who think that perhaps they want a little bit more out of their career and more flexibility and more of a chance, I guess, at think, more of a chance to experience lots of different markets while staying at one publishing company, which often is, uh, often is pretty difficult to do. If you could turn that on its head, what's the perfect think client look like? You know, I'm thinking particularly about the challenges of membership organisations or, you know, people that are very focused on a customer base, but not necessarily on a publishing outcome. Yeah, I mean, for, for us, um, we, the ideal, mem the, the ideal client for Think 
really as someone who has a very clear purpose in why they want a publishing programme. They may not know what the publishing programme should be, but they know how important it is for them to keep in touch with their audiences to and often for membership clients um remember you know the 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 printed or the digital communication they get is often the only involvement they might have with that membership organization you might join the national trust um and never visit one of their properties but you 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 join because you want to support um uh cultural heritage development saving the environment etc saving the built environment as well um and and a, and a membership publishing program is often uh, a way that uh, some of those members will that's the only way they'll ever engage with that organization so um the perfect membership client is one probably pretty much the same as um in a commercial publishing world it's where the client hands over in effect the whole publishing process to us um we work with clients in loads of different ways some of our clients we just sell the advertising for some clients we do everything apart from editorial because they have editorial expertise in house um and obviously we're never going to challenge that because often those uh, internal editorial teams are the real specialists in their that particular niche vertical sector um but where we do our best work is where uh or i guess where we do our best work is is, is what would define for me the best sort of client is where they allow us to really do our job well let us take a few risks let us push uh, push boundaries a little bit as you can probably imagine a lot of membership organizations are relatively conservative with a small yeah. c yeah. uh in terms of taking risks uh not wanting to offend or uh cause too much controversy but funnily enough our our publishing teams often push our clients to say well there's no there's no reason why you shouldn't have a an editorial viewpoint that that might cause some discussion amongst your members because at the end of the day you're stimulating engagement in a topic for which you stand for so um i i guess the perfect client is one who trusts us enough to let us um get on and deliver for them what they've asked us to deliver does that natural conservatism in uh, in these organizations does that sort of hamper you when it comes to new media and now introducing new things like i don't know email newsletters or podcasts or some digital elements to their offering yeah interestingly i think that you are probably correct in that up until certainly the pandemic has has really turned things on its head oh, with a lot of our clients um pre, pr- prior to that you know the membership sector they are often well pretty much all the time their charities are not for profits they have boards of trustees they have very um clear mandates by their members they have agms they change is slow with um some of the uh, membership organizations we deal with um and that's not a bad thing and it hasn't been a bad thing i think because whilst we've been watching the commercial publishers rush from one new uh, bright shiny button to another i mean I, i look back to the you know launch of digital editions the apple newsstand and futures rush to get 
50 plus titles ready for it on its launch, um, only to see it close very, very quickly and find out that people don't want uh, digital page turning editions. Um, you know, we, the reticence or not reticence, the the slower um, willingness to change hasn't proven a bad uh, thing really in the past few years because we've waited until we've got proof of concept for new digital products, new digital ways of working uh, before going and spending our time or our clients' time and money on uh, following them. So funnily enough, what perhaps could be seen as a, a negative side of working with membership organisations has proven to be positive um, because it means we make much fewer mistakes. Obviously, what has changed and accelerated a lot of these organisations is um, the necessity that um, the pandemic has effectively brought to uh, a lot of those organisations. Yeah. Um, and Lucy Kung, I don't know if you've, uh, if yeah. people have read that, Lucy Kung's her Transformation Manifesto, I think she summed it up really well where she said, you know, the biggest opportunity offered by COVID-19 crisis is the chance to re-sculpt corporate culture. Yeah. And, um, you know, these cultures have been unfrozen now. And a lot of the things that, you know, as an agency, in order to do our job well, we are constantly pushing our clients with new ideas, new suggestions, uh, new brand development, new product development. Um, and obviously, it's entirely up to up to them. They're the client uh, to either uh, take them and run with them or to say, actually, no, thanks at the moment. We'll leave that, uh, you know, for a year and we'll see how we go. Um, the, the pandemic has uh, ensured that a lot of them have really made some very quick and very decisive decisions about their publishing program and how to adapt to the pandemic. Um, because obviously, a lot of them now are not seeing their members at uh, at their venues, uh, London Zoo, you yeah. know, people aren't going to the zoo anymore. Uh, people aren't going to uh, historic Scotland's uh, yeah. castles and treasures. People aren't going to the annual congress of the uh, association of corporate treasurers um and the publishing program funny enough has become even more vital during this uh, lockdown period well, since march last year and it's enabled us to work really closely with clients who are very open to trying out new things they're not risk takers but more adventurous certainly is uh, what i would say that they are now uh, post uh, post-coronavirus. Was there a switch there from print to digital or did they keep going with print? Interestingly, we had, we've had a mixture. We definitely, have, because we uh, obviously use advertising and sponsorship revenues to help offset uh, the costs of the programme, and obviously as <laughs> advertising revenues have uh, really dropped significantly in print, interestingly, in membership organisations, not as bad as in the uh, the commercial world, which is which is which is perhaps another a whole another conversation. But um, basically, some of them have reduced their print frequency, but increased print quality and production values. So maybe they've gone down from uh, ten issues a year to a bi-monthly, but that bi-monthly has more pages, 
better production values, is a sexier product with a heavier thud factor, as we call it, um, which obviously shows members better quality, better value for money and, and a reason to be a member. Um, whilst we've been reducing print frequency for some of these clients, though, we have been reinvesting the savings into digital programs. So we are now doing, I would say, in the last 12 months, we probably have increased the amount of digital work we do with our clients by about 20%. So really quite a big jump um, uh, just in the last 12 months, really. We've seen it all over, that idea of trend acceleration. Do you think that, you know, this was coming anyway, it's just speeded it up? Yeah, absolutely. So we do a, um, we run a, a research uh, called Remember. Uh, we've been doing it for about nine, ten years now, which basically is we um, survey the membership sector, both on one side professional, on the other side consumer. Um, we started it, Peter, because we assumed eight, nine years ago, we assumed that print would probably be dead by now. Uh, <laughs> and we just wanted to make sure we were ahead of the curve and we knew what yeah. uh, members and membership organisations wanted from their publishing programme. We've just completed our latest research, which will be out very shortly, uh, of over 200 membership organisations representing 5 million, over 5 million uh, members. Um, and what is um, fascinating is that print is still uh, seen as one of the main, uh, most effective benefits of uh, communicating with a member. Because, of course, it's uh, uh, you're pushing content at them. It's a curated amount, set amount of content that's being delivered to them, at, normally at their home address. Um, and in terms of uh, those numbers, of the, the frequency, um, yes, they've dropped frequency, but it's still there as part of the program. Some of the, all of the clients were moving towards digital, uh, before uh, the pandemic, but at a, as I said earlier, at a very slow and steady, very conservative pace. Um, and really what's happened is the, the pandemic has just accelerated what was going to happen. However, I would say, fascinatingly, this year we had, uh, during the pandemic, we had three clients who asked to stop printing the magazine. Uh, obviously, one of the main reasons for that was they couldn't distribute the magazines to uh, their members at their office address because their their members weren't at the office. Um, and this is one of our uh, a couple of our professional clients. Um, they dropped the print, and we did a replaced with digital content. Um, funnily enough, all three of them have gone back to print now oh, wow. um, because they said members are just asking for it. Members still want a printed product as part of the a part of the publishing program. Not the whole, and probably not the most important, but it still is important. You've also recently formed a consultancy, uh, Rethink, to offer publishing advice, I guess, to other publishers. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we. It's interesting. Um, I mean, the reason, essentially, over the last twenty years, we have put together. Uh, commercially robust and sustainable publishing programs for membership organizations and for brands and over the years clients started coming to us 
asking for strategic publishing advice rather than ongoing publishing services. Um, some of them uh, wanted to keep their publishing in-house, but had a team that perhaps, perhaps wasn't uh, as skilled in uh, uh, all of the various publishing disciplines uh, as they needed to be. So they wanted some external advice. Um, some of them want to use Think, but using an external agency can be quite expensive, depending on which market you're in and if there isn't the advertising to to offset the, the, the costs. Um, so over the years, we've started doing consultancy for membership organisations. Um, and I sit on the uh, Independent Publishers Network Committee at the PPA. Um, mm. And also there, I've started coming across several publishers at events and networking conferences, etc., who were often one-title companies that just didn't have the scale to... Uh, do all the things a big publishing company can do. They can't compete. So increasingly, we were being asked to uh, ask for advice, ask for help. Um, so at the end of it, we decided, well, let's let's just formalise um, this as a consultancy arm of Think, uh, which is called Rethink, um, and uh, let's put it out there. And if organisations want... Uh, any help or advice on publishing, on growing their business. And I guess where Rethink comes more into, into play is we've seen, or I've seen, over the years, and, and perhaps have been guilty of this myself, you, you know, we get into publishing because it's fun, it's interesting, and other people that we meet in it are people like us. And um, we sometimes put our lives, uh, our blood, sweat and tears into building uh, businesses around a publishing uh, concept. And often they sort of, those businesses die with the owner um, because mm -hmm. they haven't managed to realise the true value of their publication uh, by scaling it up, by preparing it for sale, by getting it uh, out there and known amongst uh, potential uh, acquirers. And that's also something that we do at Rethink. And a very good example of that is what we've done with uh, Wonderlust over the last um, yeah. three years. So uh, three years ago, we bought the majority shareholding in Wonderlust uh, from the owner, um, who Lynn, who had set the company up 25 years ago, passionate about travel, hugely recognized in the in travel industry um but obviously her main skill set was um uh editorial was content which she is fantastic at um but um we went in and we've managed to completely transform the business over the last three years so um uh through really bringing in just the usual skill sets that we're using for our membership mm -hmm. clients is there ever a point where you're doing all these publications for other people and thinking, oh, I wish we owned this? We've always wanted to publish our own titles, our own brands and be in control of them. Um, I guess that, that, you know, the Think business, the Think membership and branded content business, it's taken up all of our time, really, up until 
uh, a few years ago. And also, we are hugely risk averse. And I think that's one of the reasons why membership organisations quite like us as, a, as an agency. Uh-huh. We don't take risks. Uh, our clients don't like taking risks. And if we do take risks, they've got to be really well thought through and be very low risk. Uh, we, we appreciate you have to take some risks in life to, to, to get things done. But um, getting Buying Wanderlust really started our um, journey into buying uh, or setting up our own brands. Um, and in January of this year, we actually formed Think Travel. Sorry, January of this year, I mean January of 2020. <laughs> we thought formed Think Travel by uh, bringing in an investor, Morris Communications in the US and the States, uh, who brought in their portfolio of inbound tourism titles, the WARE portfolio, um, and all of their uh, international licenses outside uh, the US and North America. And uh, that then combined with Think Travel, uh, with Wanderlust to form Think Travel. Now, <laughs> obviously, this was in January last year. Yeah. Um, what happened in March obviously completely <laughs> took the wind out of uh, any of our growth and expansion plans for 2020. Um, but interestingly, what we have managed to do is, uh, very excitingly, is uh, at the end of last year, we uh, actually sold the majority shareholding in Wanderlust to uh, another company, a really talented digital publisher, and he is coming in with uh, more investment uh, and going to be driving the Wanderlust brand forward from now on. We're still a shareholder in it. Think Travel is still a shareholder. Um, And really exciting that even during the pandemic, we've managed to turn Wanderlust uh, into a product that is way more digital, as you can probably imagine. Mm. We had fantastic digital traffic during the pandemic because one of the, what everyone was asking for the last uh, nine months is, when can I travel and where can I travel? So <laughs> we really used that as an opportunity to grow our digital offering. So Think Travel uh, lives on. We have the wear portfolio uh, in there, but Wonderlust. You know, we've sort of done our job with Wanderlust, really. It's, uh, mm. it's been a three-year journey. We've, we've taken it on board. We've um, cleaned out the attics, as um, <laughs> someone was saying the other day, about um, going in and um, really sorting out what a company needs to do. Um, we turned it around, and even in a pandemic, we've managed to deliver a sale of that business um, for the shareholders. And we are moving forward with... Um, I guess we've got more time now as well, more time and more uh, expertise really to, to take on new clients on the Think membership side, but also on the Rethink consultancy side. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Media Voices. Please do tell anybody who you think might uh, enjoy a weekly news roundup like the one we've just done and head over to our Ko-Fi page, which is co-fi.com slash Media Voices if you want to kick us some money to help cover our operating costs and build some of the big projects we have planned for the future. And just as the podcast has returned, so too has our daily newsletter. So that contains just four of the top most important media stories of the day as curated by us. And it's got a link to our latest episode. And it's not too late to download our Media Moments 2020 report. 
rounding up the key events and the chaos of 2020. Go on, revisit it. Uh, but there's also some stuff in there about where publishers' priorities will be this year. Go to voices.media and there'll be a link on the homepage. There'll also be a link to the newsletter as well. I should probably have said that after the newsletter. <laughs> Until next week when we'll be back with another fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and the views from the media world that week. Thank you very much for listening. Please do tell a friend and stay safe.